All right, we are back for episode three. Um, I'm going to get straight into this one today because it's probably going to be a long, long one. I counted how many pages of notes that I've made for this film. 22. So I don't know how many more that was than the other ones, but it seemed a lot. Once upon a time in the West. Hands down one of my favorite films. Um, easily one of my favorite films. Again, I still can't decide whether I prefer this one or The Good, The Bad and The Ugly as my all-time favorite Western. Um, but they're both Sergio Leone classics. So, yeah. So, obviously, directed by Sergio Leone. Um, did the Dollars trilogy. You know, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more than The Bad, The Ugly. Um so he's absolutely tipped up and then he polished that off with Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, if no one's seen this movie, I really, really, really can't stress enough how you should just go and see it because, well, you know, I don't think it's anywhere streaming available. I think you probably have to buy a, a Blu-ray or whatever. You can buy the remastered version, theatrical, doesn't matter. I'm not a salesman. I'm not going to sell you it. Just watch it. Okay. Um, it has probably one of the best opening scenes in cinema with out it, it doesn't look like it does a lot as an opening scene right on the surface you could look at it and you'd be like well there's a whole lot of silence there's just people standing around or whatever but it's masterful filmmaking so we open up on this uh like railway station and you know it's whatever year it's setting in the west you know it's cowboys and and whatnot so you have this real quiet soundscape but there's a few elements that build it um, so this might be the sort of sound effects department more so than Ennio Morricone and his outstanding score that plays throughout this film. But um, you get things like there's a, a squeaky door, there's um, chalk sort of creaking along a chalkboard, uh, there's a few birds tweeting and wind, and that's kind of it. That's kind of all the soundscape that you get. But you get this, the way that they combine those sounds, you get this sort of unnerving feeling that something isn't quite right or there's some danger coming around the corner um, and then slowly these um these men dressed in dusters start to appear in, in like doorways or in the windows and stuff they sort of it's like they're blocking all the exits and all the escapes and uh yeah to sort of beat around the uh, to get to the point really it's um it's all very tense because they're not saying anything and then you've got this little um little bloke who works there as the ticket man and that for the train tickets he's the only one that has a line of dialogue like for a long time um and they sort of dismiss him quite quickly and shut him in a cupboard and everything uh and then his i guess it's his assistant starts running away and it was only when i rewatched it this time as she's running away i think that's where tarantino got the sort of um the inspiration for the shot in inglorious bastards where uh Shoshana is like running away from Hans Lander after him and all his men have like killed her family basically in the opening of that film also another great cinematic opening what an opening that is but anyway onwards and upwards um and then you get like the, after they sort of you know she runs away and all that you get a bit more of the soundscape you know the guys start to park themselves where they're going to stand you know like they they're waiting for this train to pull up basically um and every shot of them is some of them will be shot like there'll be a small part of it as, as in like there'll be a small part of the frame the individual men and then in the background you'll get this like wonderful wide 
landscape shot of the scenery that really sort of sets it out that they're in the middle of nowhere it's like in utah or arizona or something like that you know way out in the west um and then you again because they're not saying anything they're just waiting and they're all gruff and you're like haggard and weather beaten and stuff so you you do get the sort of tropes quite early sorry you do get the sense quite early on from their tropes that they aren't good men you know <clears throat> They're taking a lot. Oh, I had some chili a minute ago and it's like coming back up my throat. Giving me a tickle. Um, yeah, so you, you sort of get the sense from all their, their gruffness and their sort of sour demeanor that they're not nice guys. Um, and then all, all, again, when the soundscape starts to come back in, you, there's this like repetitive noise of a windmill, which sort of shows the monotony of, of them waiting for this train. Um, and then there's like a drip dripping down on this guy's hat. And all these tiny little noises are amplified to, I guess, sort of show the like the deadness of the area. They really are out in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. So any innocent civilians, it, it ups the stakes for them because there's no one around to help them kind of thing. Even though there's only the ticket man, his assistant who legs it, and then whoever might appear on the train, right? Um. And what I really liked about stuff like um, there's the bloke who's stood underneath the dripping water, it sort of shows that it, it's it's a funny little character thing because you know they're they're out there as cowboys you know in in the wild west and things. So it shows their what well, his in anyway his resourcefulness because as it drips onto his hat, he collects a puddle of it and then drinks it. I don't know. I just felt like that that showed that you have to be resourceful and sort of know how to survive if you are living the lifestyle that these live so i, I thought it was pretty cool um yeah so that uh, i just just what if you watch the opening scene just watch all the, the the way they lay out the frames of each shot it's really really cool you know they'll they might have it so someone's framed underneath like a, an archway or in a window or whatever but there'll always be some sort of background landscape or something it's just it's really really nice framework for all the the characters as they wait for the train anyway that's enough of that so then you hear the train before it comes on screen so you get the sense that it's distance but then there's a really cool shot where the camera's basically at the bottom of the train track facing slightly up like tilted slightly up and the train just thunders over the top of it simple but cool um, and then there's a really lovely shot as the train stops at the station and then the three men sort of move into positions like anticipating someone coming off this train. And it's a, again, it's a really, really great shot. It's from the front of the train. Well, you see one bloke on the side who was stood under the, the water drip and then the other two are sort of scattered behind him in the, in the background. It's, it's just a great shot. I feel like I'm not doing it any justice with my explanations, but it's really good. Uh, I put outstanding on my notes, so it is good because my notes say it is. Um, and again, the the tension is sort of kept high again because they still haven't said anything. But this the soundscape, you know, be it the windmill spinning, the drip dripping, the wind or birds tweeting or whatever, it just creates this tense atmosphere and this suspense. You know, what will break the monotony of these uh, these noises? And then the train pulls away and the the men sort of relax, like, oh, the person they were waiting for off the train didn't arrive. But then for the first time we hear 
from Ennio Morricone's score, we hear the harmonica, um, you know, theme, which is really, really just, it's like ominous. It's, it's cool. And then the train pulls away and you see harmonica stood behind the train. Um, and that, that has a really lovely shot of the three guys in the foreground of the shot and then harmonica over in the background of the shot. Um, it's, yeah, it's just very nice. Um, so what I love about the harmonica thing though is like the, the theme tune that he plays on his little harmonica. He, find, he It's done, in, however Ennio Morricone wrote it, it's done in a way that it makes it scary and cool at the same time. It's a harmonica. How does he make a harmonica sound scary and cool? But he did it. And then there's like some, finally some dialogue happens. Um, Charles Bronson's character harmonica starts talking to the guys. And they've got three horses with them, you know, each for the three of the dusters. And he's expecting to meet someone else there, not these three dudes. So he says to them, like, oh, have you got a horse for me? Uh, and then they sort of joke, like, oh, no, I guess we're one horse shy or whatever, implying that they're here to kill him. And then Charles Bronson has a, a great line. He's just like, now you bought two too many. And it's like, you know, it's classic Charles Bronson. It's, you know, I didn't do it justice then, but you feel me. So then there's a classic standoff, you know, close-ups of all their faces, the eyes squinting and stuff. And then they shoot. And then uh, it goes back to that monotonous sort of windmill noise again, like once the dust has settled after he's he's killed them all. Um, and then Bronson gets a bit, because he gets shot in the arm, he gets a bit of resourcefulness for his character. You get to see that not only is this guy really, really good with his gun, because he's just killed these three dudes, um, but he's resourceful as well. He gets tagged in the arm by a bullet, and then he sort of like makes a makeshift bandage hold, uh, sling thing from his jacket uh, for his arm. So again, it shows his resourcefulness and everything. Um, <clears throat> and then we cut to um, the Mc... Was it the McBird? Why did I forget that? McBain. <laughs> Marty McBird is from Ozark. So we go to the McBain uh, family. Um, he has a fantastic moustache, which is a note I made. Um, and you... you I'm not going to go through every step of that uh, that scene, but you basically get a sense early on that uh, their their life out in the West is quite hard as well. Even though they have like this little farmstead, it's still quite a hard life. It, it's quite abundant. You know, they have to hunt for their food and everything. Um, and then there's this, there's a great soundscape in the background that I didn't realize until it stopped playing. But there's all these like crickets and you know critters and stuff making noise, and they all they all suddenly just like stop, and the mood drops, and it all gets a bit tense, and you're like someone's coming to this farmhouse, and then it starts back up again, and they sort of don't think any mind of it, um, and then it's it's established again that you know the the family are in a little bit dire straits. They need to make some more money. Um, their mother's dead. It's just the dad and the three kids, uh, and then the crickets stop again. And this time it feels different because there's a wind swell that comes in. I love the soundscape of this film. Not only is the score amazing, but the soundscape in general is just, it's so expertly done. Um, and then the, the uh, yeah, so then the whole family gets shot up by Frank. Um, by the way, yeah, spoilers galore are going to happen throughout this whole thing. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Um, the whole family gets shot up, and then the main theme is heard for the first. The main sort of theme of Once Upon a Time in the West is heard for the first time as the like last sort of surviving kid runs out and sees his, his family dead, and it's a real sort of big 
impactful moment. Um, and then the Frank's gang of, you know, people wearing uh, these dusters, these big duster coats, slowly emerge from behind all these bushes and stuff surrounding the farm. And the shot is a real low angle shot. So as they walk towards the camera, going towards the farmhouse, they you know they appear much bigger and they're like they're a lot higher in the frame so it sh sort of shows like their onimus almost kind of like unstoppable um like you know unit of of gang uh, members walking towards him um so it's a very nice shot there's a paper turn again because i'm doing this on paper um where am i now with my notes Oh yeah, and then there's a. Unfortunately, they have to kill the last kid. There's a really great cut between the gunshot firing of um, of that, and then uh, cutting straight to the sound of a train in the next scene. So you go from like loud gunshot to loud train. Um, it's just a nice, quick edit. Um, so then we have, um, what's her name, Jill, Jill McBain. Played by uh, the lovely Claudia Cardinale. Um, she's the only person in this film who doesn't profusely sweat throughout the entire thing, I swear. She's like, everyone looks so gruff and haggard in this film, and she's literally like an angel. Um, so she gets off the. She, basically, if you're not familiar with the story or whatever, she's supposed to be heading to the McBain farm, having recently married McBain. And, you know, she's going to be his wife and everything on the farm. And one of the kids was supposed to go pick her up on a horse and cart. But they're all dead now. So she gets off this train. And then she gets what I call the lonely soundtrack. Um, does it start yet? Yeah, it does. So you get the lonely soundtrack. Um, I can't remember what track it is in, like, actually listed on the soundtrack. But it's it's basically her theme. It's quite sad and um, somber and... And all of that. Um, so there's all this, the soundscape of that mo of that part of the scene as she's getting off the train and everything. There's loads of like chatter from people like greeting their friends and and everything. Um, there's there's even like a, a little bit of jolly music in the background that's that's diegetic to the uh, to the scene. So if you're not familiar with that, sorry if I'm patronising anybody, but diegetic is sound that comes from within. So say if someone's listening to a record on screen and we hear the music from the record that's diegetic but then when you hear like the soundtrack you know like the jaws theme tune boom, boom, that would be like a non-diegetic sound so there's a little lesson for you there um yeah so there's diegetic music playing and then once she realizes that no one is coming to pick her up all that stuff starts to fade and then the, her lonely soundtrack comes in um so it just sort of emphasizes that she's on her own you know everyone around her has company and then her little somber music starts um and there's a really great shot of her walking into like the actual station building and we see it through the window and then she walks out the you know the the door of the station and the camera just go uh, like cranes upwards over the station and then you see her you know walking on the other side and you get the whole sort of town that she's just arrived in is revealed. It's a really, really nice shot. You know, it's so much better than just doing a boring, static, establishing shot. You know, to have it sort of track up from the window is really cool. Um, who's the cinematographer for this? Because it's killing it. Toni, Tonino Delicolli. Sorry if I mispronounced that. What else have you done, mate? Oh, pretty much all of Sergio Leone's stuff. Nice one. Good on you. 
Um, yeah, then there's a nice uh, long journey of her traveling horse and cart to the homestead. Um, and weird, what sort of threw me a little bit with this one is most of that journey is done going left to right uh, across the screen, which, you know, creates the sort of sense of direction where they're going and everything. But then they pull up to this little tavern and they go left to right. No, sorry, right to left, which is like a little bit, it messed with the continuity a little bit, but it's probably the only flaw in the entire bloody movie. But it gives you a really, really cool uh, like look at the background. You know, it's all those like Utah mountain things, you know, like those, I can't really think how to describe them. You know, it's all that sort of like red deserty Utah, Arizona type background. It's really cool. So then they go into this um, dank, dingy, like haggard little tavern in the middle of nowhere and again like everybody in there is like some sweaty decrepit you know kind of low life type person and then she walks in all like angelic and not sweaty um so straight away she looks out of place um then there's a you get a good exchange between um cheyenne who's played by jason uh roberts um so he's one of the anti-heroes really um you think he and harmonica might have a little showdown but they just sort of like you know feel each other not feel each other up that's not like that um they're sussing each other out really you know sort of there's a bit of bravado no one wants to back down type thing um but when because so he walks in all arrogant or whatever and he's he's got handcuffs on him and before he walks in there's a big ruckus outside and gunfire and horses and stuff so you know someone potentially bad could be coming in or whatever so then he walks in uh cheyenne this is all uh gruff and then uh i don't know if he does it to provoke him but harmonica starts playing his little harmonica theme and uh when he goes around to see who it was doing it there's this like candle thing hanging uh, on a on a wire and he like slides it across to harmonica and then the music sort of like explodes or like uh, reaches a crescendo or whatever of and you hear the full main harmonica theme for the first time as the as the light finally shines on um on harmonica in the corner charles bronson in the corner um because he's in the shadows and stuff it's just a really i feel like i'm not wording it really well at all but it's just a really like nice cool moment um and then because no one really knows if cheyenne is is gonna you know just start killing everybody uh, there's this bloke who's sat at the side watching him sort of like um posture against charles bronson's character and the shot from the bloke's perspective is he sat down on a chair and it's kind of from him his hip height so you just see like his his gun and its holster on the side and that's sort of like the main thing in the foreground of the shot is that dude's gun. So you know that he's sort of, you know, in a way like cocked and loaded, ready to go if anything does kick off. And little shots like that just sort of like up the um, the tension and, you know, like, oh, what could happen here, you know? It's like if you see someone's armed, there's automatically ten you know, like tension, you know? If the weapon's hidden, there's no tension. Um, and then the real Duster gang come in and... Uh, Again, Charles Bronson gets such a good line because um, the blokes that he kills at the start in that opening scene, they're not the real Duster gang. They're not Cheyenne's men. They're pretending to be Cheyenne's men. 
So Charles Bronson says to uh, Cheyenne and his dudes, once he sees all these dusters, and he's like, I saw three dusters. Inside the dusters were three men. Inside the men were three bullets. It's such a cool line. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. It's just great. Such a well-written line. Um, and Charles Bronson has this really cool demeanor throughout the entire film where he doesn't say a whole lot. It's very much, you know, the man with no name, um, Clint Eastwood style in the Dollars trilogy. But he doesn't really say a lot. But whenever he does speak, it's just tip-top dialogue. And he doesn't necessarily emote too much with his face. He just has a real calm, slow, casual... Like, he doesn't do anything quickly in the film. Unless he's, like, shooting from his hip and killing someone. It's the only thing he does quickly. If he's taking a sip of water... He does it slowly. If he's walking around the bar, he does it very slowly. Um, in drama school, it's what we would have called sustained movement. Um, if you've ever studied Yat Malgram, you might know what that means. Anyway. Um, yeah, so then we... Um, Muggins carries on a little journey. Uh, Jill McBain carries on her journey towards the farmstead where she has no idea that her family have all been murdered yet. Um, she just thinks, why didn't anyone pick me up from the train station? But they arrive and there's a whole sort of funeral procession. Procession? Procession. A funeral procession. Yeah. Waiting for her. <laughs> and um, as like, you know, there's the clip clop, clip clop of the horse moving. And then as she sort of sees the dead bodies hidden behind the the funeral gatherers um the clippity clop stops and it's just a real like penny drop moment um so again great soundscape uh, and then the lonely soundtrack starts again it's like her theme her theme of loneliness bless her um yeah moving on with another page turn uh, oh, okay, so then obviously she wants to try and figure out why her family's been killed, right? So she starts rummaging around the McBain house, you know, looking for anything. Maybe she's looking for money or diamonds or gold. Like, what would have been the reason for these bandits to turn up and kill her whole family? And all the shots of her searching, they're all real close-ups on what her hands are doing, you know, what drawers she's opening, what boxes she's going into. And because these shots are all close-ups, it sort of creates a manic... Um, like chaos to the scene it, it makes it a little bit hard to follow what she's doing and where she's looking uh, and that sort of you know that is a really cool way of like emphasizing her sort of like manic search throughout the whole house you know if they just done a shot from the side and had her running around like a headless chicken looking for stuff I don't think it would have been as effective so it's a cool uh, cool way of just upping that a little bit uh, and then there's a shot she lays down on the bed a bit sort of defeated like she can't find the reason and the shot is directly above her and there's this like it's a four poster bed and there's a sort of um like a a mesh sheet over the top of the the four posters and it's black and she's wearing a black dress so as the camera sort of zooms in from behind that that mesh to get a close up of her face it looks like she's wearing a funeral veil you know so I don't know if that was deliberate, but that's what I took from it. It's like it kind of looks exactly like a funeral veil type mesh thing. Um, yeah, so so I guess it sort of just uh, emphasizes the um, the fact that everybody's dead, unfortunately, and her lonely soundtrack is is playing again. Um, 
then she there's a there's a really nice uh, tense moment where it's the next day and she goes to open the door to leave and we see it from her side on so she sort of opens the door and the face of the door basically takes up half the uh, half the shot like half the frame and she just stops dead looking outside because at this point everyone thinks it's Cheyenne's gang that have that killed her family because there's report uh, they, they found her like a rag of one of the dusters you know like one of the dusters ripped and it was left behind so everyone's like oh Cheyenne's gang wearing dusters um so she opens the door and Cheyenne stood right there and she's obviously met him in this tavern earlier so she knows who he is she knows he can be a bit rough um but we don't see that it's Cheyenne until the camera like tracks around um but it's very yeah it's very tense and then where he's basically in there it, he, he walks into her house now and he's like you know making it clear that he wasn't the murderer but she doesn't really know if she can trust that right now and there's a really nice tense moment where um she's like you know looking for cups and, and coffee and stuff to make them coffee and she opens the drawer and stops and then Cheyenne notices she stops moving, but he doesn't turn around. He just sort of like listens and has a look on his face like, what are you up to? And then we see in the drawer, there's a knife. And then there's sort of like a, a tense sort of like, should I do something with this knife or should I not? Um, and then she decides I better not, because if I try and kill this guy, he's probably going to like pull out his gun and shoot me. Um, so she slams the door drawer shut and Cheyenne sort of smirks like, yeah, that was a wise choice. It's better not to try and mess with me type thing again i feel like i'm not wording it very well but it's a very good tense moment um yeah moving on oh then we go into uh the railway where we actually see frank and his i guess it's his boss effectively um what was his name uh mr morton yeah the sort of railroad baron type guy um and they have a cool uh, dialogue exchange where you can tell that, like, although Frank is kind of employed by him at this point, he, you know, wants to usurp him effectively. And uh, there's a moment where Frank ends up sitting behind Morton's desk and he has a, a cool line where Morton's like, how does it feel sat behind that desk? And he's like, oh, it's like holding a gun, but more powerful. And he looks at him like, yeah, you might have the power now, but it ain't going to be with you very long type thing. Um, and then Morton sort of tries to, you know, one-up him by saying uh, the only thing more powerful than a gun is money, and he's got a shitload of that. So, yeah, it's just a good exchange. Um, I put great movement of camera around staging, etc., but I can't remember what bit that was for. I don't think it's for inside the train. But there's... A Oh, yeah, so this is when they're back inside um, the McBain house uh, with Jill and uh, Cheyenne. It's, there's hardly any static shots. Anytime she, because she's moving around like tidying up or whatever. And there's a real cool shot where he's just stood on the table and she sort of gets up to move. And the camera sort of half follows her, but also kind of stays on Cheyenne at the same time. It's just, there's not really any static shots. The camera's always moving, you know? There's always some sort of movement, be it just a tilt or a pivot. And I don't know, but it just sort of makes you feel a bit more like you're in there with them, not like you're watching it through like a window. Do you know what I mean? Because you're moving with the camera. Um, so yeah, it just feels more involved, especially with these interior shots. 
Um, and then we get the belt and braces guy. So it goes. I think it goes back to um, in the train with uh, Morton. And the reason I bring up the belt and braces guy, it, there's a funny line that... Uh, what's his name? What's his actual name? Frank. Henry Fonda. Yeah, so Frank is... is sort of the villain of it. Um, Henry Fonda has just got such good swagger throughout this whole film. Like, he's not really intimidated. He's not rushed. He's not panicked. He just has this real calm swagger about him. Uh, and this, this Belt and Braces guy comes to, like, report that, you know, um, Charles Bronson and Jill and, and the rest of them are, like, you know, causing issues to their diabolical schemes. And he's like, how do you expect me to trust you when you uh, you're a guy that wears a belt and braces and you can't even trust your own pants or something like that I've completely butchered it but it's quite funny and it comes back later um, because Frank uh, actually ends up killing that dude and he, he shoots him what once in each shoulder that breaks his braces and then once in the belt that breaks his belt and it's just like a, it's like extra insult not only does he kill him but he's also like done a callback to uh, to his um, insult earlier Uh Oh, we get a, we get a glimpse of um, the walk. Uh, so it's like a Charles Bronson's character harmonica. It's sort of like the flashback because no one really knows his motives at this point in the film. He's completely kept a mystery right up until the end as to like what he's doing. We just know that he's got it in for Frank. That's like all we know. We don't know why. So then there's a glimpse, um, really out of focus, not for very long at all, as to like what the past may have been involving uh, Charles Bronson and. Henry Fonda. Um, moving on. Moving. On. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, there's another there's another moment earlier on that I didn't comment on where um, two more men go back to the McBain farm to kill Jill, not realizing that she was going to turn up in the first place. And Charles Bronson deals with them. And then so when Charles Bronson sort of gets caught by Henry Fonda and stuff and he's on the train, he has a really, really great line where when someone reports that the two hitmen are dead, he goes, uh, your friends have a high mortality rate, Frank. It's such a good line. He just gets so many gems throughout this entire film. Um, yeah. What else? Oh, yeah, so then, um, you know, Henry Fonda disappears um, off on another little mission or whatever, and I really like the score in this bit because Cheyenne comes to rescue Harmonica from the, like, train that he's been caught in by the Baron and stuff, and he starts picking off the guards sort of one by one, you know, he's, like, walking on top of the train and, like, hiding underneath it, and, and they just, they can't seem to, like, to catch him or, or whatever, and they're just getting picked off one by one. And the score becomes really playful. It's like really kind of like, even though he's, he's there killing people, but the score is really like joyful. So it's, to me, that emphasized the fact that she, uh, Cheyenne is literally just toying and playing with the uh, with the people that he's picking off one by one. Like they literally don't stand a chance. And I think the, uh, the score really reflects that. Um, yep, then there's a station reveal. Um... Page turn. Yeah, then they start they start figuring out the plan of what this you know what's happening with the station and all that. Um, it's all very good. Oh yeah, and then I made a note about um, Henry Fonda gets a bit rapey. Um, you know he's he's got um, Jill sort of partially captive at the moment. Um, he's sort of trying to convince her to sell her land. 
so that he and his men can buy it because um, the land you know ends up being really valuable and stuff like that the whole plan is to build a, a city uh, like a town there you know like a train station church school all of that um and yeah he gets a little bit rapey with her but then through the conversation they're having he doesn't actually you know rape her or whatever it's just a bit creepy um but through the conversation they're having it transpires that she used to be a prostitute um and she's essentially willing to sleep with frank in that moment so that he doesn't kill her so it, yeah it is rape really yeah so bad character bad character frank um and then we go to the auction house um after frank's convinced her to like auction off her stuff for absolute peanuts um so that he and his men can buy it on the cheap and make more profit from it um and you think it's about to be sold for i think it's like 500 dollars or something um and no one there's all these um gang members around the auction house stopping people from bidding uh you know intimidation tactics and whatnot uh and then there's a, a great shot looking over from like the balcony or around the auction house and just as he's like going going once going twice um you're basically the shot from down the uh from looking down from the balcony is charles bronson's perspective and he's like i'll bid and he puts like five grand on it or something um but it's just a cool shot you know the the sort of banister of the balcony frames the auction house really nice it's just a nice shot you know it's hard to explain how nice a shot is with like just words it's obviously a lot better when you can see it so maybe one day i'll start incorporating like youtube videos into this but so many of the shots throughout this film are amazing. Be it when she's riding on the horse and carriage going to the McBain farm, you get all these wonderful like scenery shots or the opening scene where you've got this like uh, the train station and all the mountains and stuff in the background. Or when I was talking about the, the camera work within the house and stuff, there's just so many beautiful looking shots. It's just really hard to explain them. So I do apologize if I'm doing a bad job about that, but you know, deal with it. Um, there's a classic saloon door entrance as well, you know, where they sort of open the two like swinging uh, door bits. Uh, Frank, it's a cool saloon entrance. I don't know when that started becoming a trope for Western movies, but it's always good. So keep doing it. Uh, there's another flashback of revealing a little bit more again. What is Charles Bronson's deal here? You know, what's his character do doing? But again, it doesn't reveal exactly what. Um... Ah, and then uh, Frank's men have basically been paid off by the Baron to turn on him. So when he leaves the saloon, it's a weird moment where him and Charles Bronson sort of work together to pick off these uh, these guys one by one that have like all come to kill Frank. And initially Charles Bronson thinks that they are with Frank and they're there to ambush him. And then he sort of starts to slowly realise they're actually there for Frank. And there's barely any music throughout this entire bit. It's just diegetic noises, you know, like other civilians walking around, horses clippity-clopping away in the background, the wind blowing, all that kind of stuff. Because it just sort of creates the, the tension that both Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson are like sort of spying out for where these hitmen are going to come from, you know, because they're like, you know, hiding behind straw or like straw barrels barrels of hay and stuff or like um behind a billboard sign and you know on top of roofs and things um so 
obviously they're, they're all they're all moving around real slow like they're stalking their prey you know like lions or tigers stalking their prey both henry fonda charles bronson and the hitman it's a real quiet scene until there's gunfire you know um and the music starts to build a little bit to create a bit more suspense and tension but it is ultimately quite a quiet um sound other uh, sorry scene other than the diegetic sounds um so yeah i liked it um oh and then there's a really there's another really cool shot as well so in the, in the meantime we don't know this until later on but cheyenne's paid a visit to uh the train again to see the baron and after henry fonda has been attacked by his own men um he then obviously goes straight back there probably figuring out straight away that you know it must have been the baron that um that paid them off to do that to turn on him so as he gets to the train there's so many dead men in front of it some of them are the duster gang some of them are frank's men and you know the baron's men and stuff so he, he gets off his horse we see the train from the side he gets in the back of the train and then we hear him walking through the corridor of the train like slowly you know step by step walking and the whole time the camera is just tracking along the side of the train you know sort of slowly going past all these dead bodies scattered in front of it and it's a really cool shot we don't go inside the train with henry fonda and see what he's seeing we stay on the outside and just track along i don't know why they did it but it worked so it's a really cool shot um and the whole the only noise in that scene is his footsteps or like the horse on the outside you know moving around a little bit um really really good stuff um am i near the end of my notes already god i'm getting through these aren't i oh no i'm not <laughs> i'm really not um as a as a cool so moving on again to near the end of the film there's um you know they're back at the ranch pretty much all the villains have been dealt with by this point apart from henry fonda's frank um and charles bronson is just waiting for him he sat on the outskirts of the of the ranch while uh jill and um cheyenne jason roberts are you know inside having a little chat and stuff and jill's like what is he doing out there and uh cheyenne says he's whittling on a piece of wood i've got a feeling when he stops whittling something's gonna happen and it's a just a know a cool line again that sets up like you know more tension and stakes due to come um and so then we see frank approaching the ranch and the theme starts again um as he goes as he rides up to uh harmonica charles bronson um it's just a classic example of music creating the tone of the scene you know what's happening now is it getting serious is it getting funny is it whatever it's just and Ian Morricone doesn't miss he's never made a bad score and he's firing on all cylinders on this film in particular um so yeah they basically they have a conversation and it's apparent that Harmonica and Frank are about to face off you know and um and have a shootout and for the whole film Charles Bronson's been dressed in white primarily or like off-white colors um he's got like a white jacket white trousers and a sort of grayish hat and henry fonda for the last couple of scenes has been dressed in just black so there's a complete contrast between the two of them you know it's, it is pretty much as simple as one's good one's evil but it's you know 
good contrast um and he says he's not gonna Fr frank wants to know who he is and why he's after him and he says he's not going to tell you till the moment of death which is just again another great line that charles bronson has um yeah so for the face-off climax they you know they walk out into sort of a larger like uh part of the of the land uh, get some good distance between them and all, again all these sh the shots building up to this moment the, the shots get closer and closer as the as the tension is built in this in this scene right so as it starts off when they're like walking out they do that classic thing where they pace around a little bit until they're happy with where they're stood and all, all of those shots are done really wide taking in all the mountain ranges of the background and then you know as it sort of starts getting closer to crunch time as in when they're actually going to pull out their guns and shoot each other that's when the the camera starts to move into like mid shots or face close-ups or like extreme close-ups of their eyes and things you know because it's it's getting more and more to the boiling point essentially um so that's just an example of how you know choosing what frames you want to use and what shots you want to use and then the edit of the sequence of them together can just start increasing the tension for the audience um and there's a really long shot where it's just static on the side and it's just them to either side of the frame staring at each other and it's held there for for a little while um and the fact that it doesn't cut away for a bit again just like ups the tension and the music stops and we get more extreme close-ups of the eyes and then finally so if you haven't watched the film yet this is the biggest spoiler of the film that i'm about to talk about because it's a real big moment but we finally get a flashback to exactly why charles bronson has been after frank for the entire film so we go back to the the sort of uh i don't know if i explained it earlier actually but every time we've seen a glimpse of the flashback before there's been someone walking towards the camera and it's all been blurred out and that they're not in focus right so then finally he walks into focus and it's uh, like a younger Henry Fonda. Um, and he pulls out a harmonica. It's the same harmonica that Charles Bronson's been playing the entire film. And he he just, just extends his hand forward out of frame and then the camera cuts around and there's a young kid who looks like a younger Charles Bronson. It is a younger Charles Bronson. So they cast the kid well. And he's got two boots on his shoulders someone stood on his shoulders basically and uh henry fonda puts the harmonica in his mouth and then the camera pans out and you realize any oh, i think he says um uh, play this for your brother or something like that and it pans out and you realize the person stood on his shoulders has a noose around his neck so if you know if charles bronson as, as a kid if he moves away from supporting the per uh, his brother who stood on his shoulders then his brother will be hung right and all frank and, and his men are around there sort of like waiting for that moment to happen um charles bronson's looking really tired like he's he's about to pass out like he's on his last legs trying to keep his brother alive basically and then the the sound the the score for this entire scene is so loud and powerful and it's the harmonica theme tune right that that charles bronson's been playing throughout the the whole movie 
and it's but it's done in such a like an epic loud crescendo kind of way it just makes the whole scene so powerful and dramatic and then eventually uh poor little charlie bronson um more or less faints from exhaustion and falls and uh, his brother gets hung and it's like so it's so sort of dramatic and heart-wrenching like it it's shot relatively simply not trying to discredit it but in terms of like the angles that they use and stuff apart from that one where it tracks out on a crane shot and you see him stood on his shoulders most of it is just like close-ups and mid shots and stuff but you know it's, it's everything combined with the performances of the actors and then the score that just makes it so powerful and impactful um so yeah so then it's so then you you know then effectively why charles bronson has been after frank the whole time so as soon as he falls down and his brother gets hung we then cut to um to the standoff again and as soon as we cut to the standoff they pull out their guns and shoot each other well charles bronson shoots um henry fonda henry fonda doesn't get a chance um and he sort of he gets shot in the just uh, it's more or less the heart and he turns around like because of the force of the bullet turns him away from charles bronson and he stumbles a bit and then he tries to holster his gun but he misses and it, it drops on the floor but i thought that that was like symbolic of of like he's done you know he's finished he's finished his his job where well, he didn't finish his job in the end he didn't succeed but like you know his his any quest he had or any time left he had is done he's finished and i thought the holstering of the gun was like symbolic of that i don't know if it was meant to be but that's what i got from it and that's what's great about art is you can make of it what you bloody will um and then he will charles bronson walks up to him and gets his harmonica out because he still hasn't told henry fonda at this point who he is even though for most of the film henry's been like who the bloody hell is this guy um, and he pulls out his harmonica and puts it in Henry Fonda's mouth as he's dying. And then Henry Fonda has that like realization of, oh, my past has caught up with me. And then he dies. Um, but it's, uh, it's such a, I feel like I've done absolutely no justice to my explanations of any of this film. And I feel like if people haven't watched it and they've just listened to this podcast, they're going to be like, this film sounds boring as balls. But I swear to you, it's such a bloody good film. And just watch it just watch it so um then it's kind of a, apparent that um you know so jill and cheyenne are still inside the house um charles bronson walks back in and then basically it's apparent that both charles bronson and cheyenne are, are going to move on you know they're going to go carry on about their their life they don't really have any ties to jill other than you know the stuff that they had to resolve with frank and then the railway man you know the railway baron uh, mr morton um, so again, Jill's lonely soundtrack starts playing, you know, re-emphasizing the fact that, yeah, they might have got rid of the bad guys, but she is once again on her own. You know, she gets that lonely soundtrack. But there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, because once those two leave, Charles Bronson and um, Cheyenne, once they leave, um, there, there's so many workers and stuff building up the town you know around them you know the, the new railway station the churches and all that there's people building it and there's a really really nice crane shot that sort of tracks over the whole like workforce doing their thing um and it it sort of just gives you like promise of you know there's like hope for the future 
kind of thing in the way that it's shot and the score that plays and everything it just it's sort of like not everything is bad we're building something for the future type thing so it's a really nice moment and she comes out and gives all the workers water and stuff and it, that to me showed that like there is a community being built there you know they are gonna all sort of work together and build this nice community in this nice new town and stuff so yeah it's that it's that light at the uh the end of the tunnel um and then i noticed on the credits um as they were rolling up there's a message of gratitude to the um navajo tribe for letting them basically film on all of their land so i thought that was pretty sweet um because i don't know lots about um you know sort of native american tribes and stuff in america other than the fact that they kind of get a raw deal all of the time which isn't nice uh so you know to just throw a little bit of message of gratitude in there for them i thought that was pretty cool and i'm grateful they let them film there because it's one of my favorite films so nice one navajo tribe um but yeah that's it that's that's my analysis for the film i actually got through that a lot quicker than i expected to um it's it's absolute masterful filmmaking throughout the entire thing like sergio leone is telling such a great story and through a combination of the soundscape the soundtrack which are different things um you know the stoic kind of like unmoving performances from pretty much everybody like nobody oversells their performance in this everyone's really like subtle and does the bare minimum and i don't mean that in a bad way i don't mean like they're lazy actors but it's very um everyone's quite sort of stoic and it's um it's cool um yeah and then you know combined with all the all the film elements all the film elements be it the set design the costume it's just it's masterful filmmaking um so if you have seen it i hope you agree with that and if you haven't seen it see it and then agree with me okay okay yeah that's it um i've rambled for 50 minutes uh i'm gonna be back next monday for episode four i'll hopefully be a little bit more uh awake than i am this time I'm a little bit hungover won't lie um but yeah Peace out, rate, review, subscribe, all that good shit. Bye.